I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Making Matt Edition. It's Wednesday, January 29th, 2020. On today's show, we continue our journey to the Oscars uh, with uh, Jojo Rabbit, the daring curio about a young boy whose imaginary friend is, yes, it's true, Adolf Hitler. And then Cheer on Netflix, is uh, it's captivating everyone I know. We discuss the docu-series about the quintessentially American phenomenon of competitive cheerleading. And finally... We have a Grammy wrap-up with Slate's own Carl Wilson. It's been too long. He is a supreme friend of the program and SFOP. It'll be great to talk to Carl again. But first, Julia Turner is uh, Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times, joining us from LA. Hey, Julia. Uh, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey there. We should note that my sound might be a little bit off today uh, for various boring technical reasons, but... Uh, hopefully you'll be able to hear me and I'll be clear as bell next week. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Superb. So I think oh, let's dive right in. I am so eager to talk about this movie. Johannes Jojo Betzler is a young boy of 10. He lives in Nazi Germany in the waning days of the war with his mother. His father has disappeared perhaps into the front. That's not entirely clear uh, right at the beginning of the movie. But to make up for this absence and to buck himself up for being a pitiably underperforming young Volk, he imagines that Hitler is his friend, his life coach and mentor. The movie is written and directed by Taika Waititi, uh, who also stars as Hitler. He's the New Zealander best known, I think, for invigorating the Thor franchise, among other things which I'm sure we'll discuss. Let's listen to a clip. Poor Jojo. What's wrong, little man? Hi, Adolf. Want to tell me about that rabbit incident? What was all that about? They wanted me to kill it. I'm sorry. I couldn't. Don't worry about it. I couldn't care less. But now they call me a scared rabbit. Let them say whatever they want. People used to say a lot of nasty things about me. Oh, this guy's a lunatic. Oh, look at that psycho. He's going to get us all killed. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. The rabbit is no coward. The humble little bunny faces a dangerous world every day, hunting carrots for his family, for his country. My empire will be full of all animals. Lions, giraffes, zebras, rhinoceroses, octopuses, rhinoctopuses, even the mighty rabbit. Cigarette? Oh, no thanks, I don't smoke. Let me give you some really good advice. Be the rabbit. The humble bunny can outwit all of his enemies. He's brave and sneaky and strong. Be the rabbit. Jojo! Are you all right, Jojo? Who are you talking to? Nobody. Dana, as always, I'll start with you. This is uh, this is quite a daring gambit um, for a movie, though. Funnily enough, the movie is not as much about its MacGuffin uh, as all the surrounding publicity had made me think it was. Anyway, I'm I'm really really curious to know what you think about this movie. 
The MacGuffin being Hitler, you mean? Yeah. I mean, the movie is the movie is advertised as a movie about a boy and his imaginary friend Adolf Hitler. But but in in reality, I actually don't think that that's what the movie's about, which we can get into. Right. There's other relationships that are more important. Although the idea of Hitler as an imaginary friend is is definitely the movie's most original conceit. This is adapted from a book that I think shares a lot of elements with the story, but not the imaginary friend Hitler. That was Taika Waititi's construction and also a part that he plays. Okay, Jojo Rabbit, I feel many complex things about this movie. For one thing, I kept putting off seeing it because I had not heard great advanced buzz and I didn't want to feel bad about Taika Waititi just because, you know, as you say, he he brought some real fun to the Marvel franchise with the Thor Ragnarok movie. He also has this history of make, we talked about his What We Do in the Shadows, the um the vampire sitcom that he's making which is based on a movie of the same title of his and he has this history of making just playful, fun, weird comedies in New Zealand with the Flight of the Concord guys who are old compatriots of his. And I have a general warm feeling and excitement about his career and didn't want to see a movie that brought me down and made me think that he wasn't as great as I thought. And I'm not sure whether this movie does blow my conception of him or not, but I will say that I couldn't wait for it to be over. I found this movie very draggy, although it's full of clever dialogue and, you know, beautiful colors and it has many um, wonderfully thought out details. The entire concept is so, was so muddled and the kind of moral positioning of the movie was so ambiguous. I mean, not not whether or not it's pro-Hitler, obviously. It's a deeply humanist movie that's about a little boy growing up. But the way that it uses satire to tell that story, or a mixture of satire and sentimentality to tell that story, just felt very muddled and strange to me. Also, any attempt that I kept trying to make to connect it with, you know, what fascism and Nazism mean right now in the world and all of the urgent things that are happening that are connected to, you know, this kind of blind fanaticism that the little boy has for his imaginary Hitler. I wasn't able to make those connections directly. It seemed like it was gesturing toward being connected with the real world or the current world without quite saying how. I also, I feel bad always saying this about children in movies, but I did not think the child performances in this movie were that well directed. It's not that Roman Griffin Davis, the little boy who plays Jojo Rabbit, isn't talented. He is. But the dialogue that he's speaking is so stylized and satirical and weird, and the character seems so inconsistent that he's not really playing a real character. Um, there's another little boy who plays his best friend, and their relationship is quite important to the movie, but it felt like two kids being coached to say words that they didn't quite get the full meaning of to me. The performances of the children actually reminded me of a movie that I think is being consciously referenced here, which is Moonrise Kingdom, the Wes Anderson movie about, you know, a romance between these two pre-adolescent kids. And it was sort of the same thing with that movie where I felt like there was a cutesy, sentimental stiffness to the way childhood was treated that had nothing to do with any experience of real childhood that I've ever connected to. And yet, Childhood is very important to this movie, right? I mean, it's all about uh, imagination and a little boy growing up and having to let go of his illusions. And maybe what I'm saying is just as muddled as the movie, but I was not emotionally engaged. I was often annoyed or bored. And at the same time, I often found myself thinking, that was a good joke. That was a good shot. That was a good choice to reveal this uh, this twist in that way. So there's a lot of technical expertise and writing expertise behind this movie. But there's something about the conception that is just confusing and strange to me and that never pulled me in mm. well julia so comedy plus sentimentality plus nazism reminds one i think of life is beautiful a movie that some people 
hated right from the beginning, but I think over time, those who didn't hate it from the beginning have come around to regarding as a really misbegotten and in some ways deeply tasteless exercise. There's certainly that danger with Jojo Rabbit. Where did you come out on this movie? It would be so interesting to go back and see Life is Beautiful again. I remember being less appalled than some by it at the time, but um, I, I just wonder how it would age. I agree with Dana completely that this is a befuddling and not charmless movie that somehow does not quite work despite having some components that do work and some components that do not. I disagree a bit that it has nothing to do with the present moment. I mean, it's about how, you know, idiot youths who don't remember history can find themselves smitten with a despotic leader who seems like a pal because he bolsters their sense of manhood and how difficult and complicated it can be to disentangle yourself from that. I mean, you know, we're living in a moment where White supremacy is very appealing to lots of young men and very tied up with their ideas of masculinity and loneliness. Like on paper, this is a movie that could be very resonant about some of the challenges of our present moment, I think. Um, But I agree with many, many notes that Dana struck. First of all, I mean, the Moonrise Kingdom observation, it's, it's extremely tonally present. It's in a bunch of reviews about the film you know, in, in saying I was about to go see it, a smart friend of mine was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's Moonrise Kingdom, but the kids, but but like with Hitler and Anne Frank, <laughs> like that doesn't, just don't, that doesn't sound like a good idea just from a, from a starting position. Um, I also found myself attracted among the things that are very good, including the concept of Hitler's imaginary friend, which, which those scenes with Taika Waititi as Hitler do weirdly kind of work, I think. Um, In part because of his performance. I mean, he's really funny, right? I mean, he's just, he's an extremely captivating performer. Yeah, and and just sort of the, the presentation of, of Hitler as an idiot buffoon sort of works. The production design is just so ostentatiously beautiful. I mean, that's part of, I think, what's conjuring the uh, references to Wes Anderson, but I like just kept looking at it and being like, well, I want to door that color and I want Scar Joe's sweater and I want those shoes. I'm like, what am I, what are all these beautiful objects doing in this movie? Like, I do not think, you know, I don't know, like living through, you know, end of war Germany was probably quite so technical or beautiful. Like, why is this movie so beautiful? I couldn't figure out. Maybe it's supposed to be the childlike, I don't know, coziness of his illusions. I, I couldn't, couldn't quite put all the pieces together. And I agree that just the sort of stilted, mannered performance of childhood, I think how much more power, I mean, imagining the alternate movie is never a good move because that's that's not our job as critics. But the notion that in childhood you can get wrapped up in something deeply dumb and evil would be so much more powerful if you if it felt like a real childhood or a real set of beliefs as opposed to all play acting, which is what it feels like. Mm. Can I confess I liked this movie? I mean, I'm, 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 I'm prepared to be talked out of it, um, but let me begin with what I unequivocally loved about it, which was both Sam Rockwell's performance and that character. If someone felt that the movie was overbroad and kind of, um, you know, maybe sort of nudged in the direction of slapstick, I could understand maybe not loving the Rockwell character. But to the extent that you're going somewhat with the flow of the movie, you know, I, I don't want to give anything away, but I, I kind of, I just, I just think Rockwell is 
going through one of those periods as an actor uh, where he's good in everything he does. I think he's terrific in this. I think he's very funny. It's a little Python-esque, but then there's this shading that I just don't want to spoil anything. But uh, And then at the end of the movie, he plays an absolutely critical role in its climactic moments. I think that's a great performance. As to the as to what the connection is to the present moment, you know, I actually felt that quite strongly. I think fascism is a fantasy by which men who perceive themselves to be belittled by the world get magically resized, right? It's like they've been made tiny by the women who sexually humiliate, they believe, sexually humiliate them, uh, uh, you know, a workforce that doesn't compensate them properly and a set of public images that don't exalt their own type and they feel small and there's this compensatory fantasy of um of a grandiose you know restitution which lends itself to comedy i mean there's a reason why nazism you know has been treated like successfully a bunch of times um as a subject for comedy because of this contrast between these fucking pathetic creatures who need it so badly and the grandiosity that they need and i felt the conceit worked for me because fascism plays off of the little terrified little boy in grown-up men it's why it's so dangerous and um as to the tone of the whole movie i agree that it's been wes andersonized in a way, and that lends itself to treating childhood as as precious, the source of a kind of you know humanism and omniscience that the adult world's incapable of, which is a sentimentality I generally loathe. The central relationship of the movie is not between Jojo and the imaginative construct of, of Hitler. It's um, much more between Jojo and this uh, young Jewish girl that he ends up befriending than that. I thought the performance by Thomas and Mackenzie was was wonderful. I but I I mean I'm it wouldn't take too hard a nudge to get me over on the other side of the fence. I hate to be mamby pamby about it, but I I see the criticisms. I see that one is meant to project upon her all of one's you know powerful associations with Anne Frank that might be slightly lazy. I I think a very open question is why if the source material didn't feature an imaginary Hitler did it seem important to include it in the movie? And and this points maybe to the movie's biggest weakness. Now imagine that film without the director playing Hitler. It kind of would be, what, what would it be, Dana? Like, help me out a little bit. It would be maybe trite. What would it be? It would be slight and trite and... I don't know. Like the, it's, it's. It would funny. be less and, edgy, right? I mean, I think the the, the idea right. of having Hitler as this kind of comic buffoon who pops up in the kid's bedroom to talk to him about rabbits. Saves it from the sentimentality that it could have foundered it, and that I think at moments yeah. it still does. Yeah, I mean, I, despite more agreeing with Dana about the conclusion that this movie does not quite come off and make something new, great, relevant, and meaningful out of the, you're right, generally sometimes successful idea of treating Nazism as a as a venue for farce or for satire. I suppose I didn't hate the movie or feel offended by it. And I think part of it is that Taika Waititi just seems so smart and engaging. He's right there being great and getting a great performance. I found myself inclined to, you know, give this film a like chuff on the shoulder and a good effort as opposed to a like you monster, how dare you type response. In part because all the performances seem good. And I agree that the Sam Rockwell arc is uh, interesting and moving and 
you can't quite see it coming in the same way that you can see some of the other moves coming. I also just think Thomas and Mackenzie, I'm not sure I think that character is written very well, but I think her performance is amazing and her, you know, quiet girl removed from society with an incredibly pointy and quivering chin quality. Like, I cannot wait to see how that is deployed in decades to come. I just think she's one of the most interesting young actresses we've encountered in recent projects. And then Leave No Trace was one of the best movies I think we've talked about in the last five years and, you know, criminally under under accoladed now that I'm a professional accolade journalist. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't know, she's terrific. She's terrific. But the guy, the, the, that, that relationship is sort of moving in some of the performances and a little bit thin in its writing. Well, and something else about that relationship without getting into spoilers about it, but he encounters this Jewish girl. He doesn't seem to have ever met a Jew before. And then they have this ongoing kind of somewhat playful, somewhat antagonistic back and forth about what a Jew is. And she makes up these lies and tells him that, you know, Jews can read each other's minds and hang from the ceiling. And she's essentially embroidering on all the fantasies that she knows the Nazi party has already planted in his mind. But it just that seems so decontextualized to me. And uh, I'm sure that some other reviews have made note of this, that, you know, if this was really taking place in a German town in 1945, obviously Jews and Germans would have had intermingled lives for decades beforehand, right? So the idea that a Jew is this kind of crazy fantasy in his mind that he has to ask someone what they are just seems completely lifted out of any kind of historical context to me. And so I agree, Julie, this is this is not a matter of flouncing around being offended by this movie. I, I'm not at all offended by the idea of taking this material and making it into a comedy, even a broad, crazy, satirical comedy that has Hitler dancing around in your bedroom. But To do that in a way that just wrenches history out of context so that if you were a kid, a 10-year-old kid watching this saying, gee, what was World War II? What were the Nazis? I don't know what they were. I don't think you'd come out of it saying Hitler was was somebody who lived in people's bedrooms. You'd get that that was a fantasy. But the idea that Jews and Germans were complete strangers to each other and that, you know, these two children had to had to learn what the other culture was in that way is just ahistorical and a little bit disturbing. I don't disagree, but I want to push back a little bit because this is a very specific kind of movie and it really announces itself with the Hitler character and performance. Yes, it doesn't serve that purpose. If a child who knew very little about the Holocaust or Nazi Germany were to watch it, they would walk away, you know, misinformed might be a strong word. They wouldn't walk away, you know, informed. It's not that kind of a movie. It's not like an, you know, it's not a Spielberg, you know, it's not Schindler's List. It's not this like, you know, po-faced lesson about moral heroism, which is a form of sentimentality in and of itself that I find vastly more revolting than what's on display here. I, I, I just don't, I don't think it has to be that movie. I think it's so upfront about its intentions, um, uh, you know, not to be that kind of a film that I, I, I just don't see that as its problem in a way. I mean, one thing I will say, Julia, and then we can wrap, but is maybe one reason, you know, this c- comical, fantasy projection of Adolf Hitler was added to the film is that the um, Thomas and McKenzie character is actually playing a very deft game of tennis with this young Nazi. And and by the way, like the moving part of the movie is, is, you know, she says to him, you're not a Nazi. Like he is doing everything he can to be a good little Nazi. He desperately wants to be a good Nazi. And she's the one who says to him, that's that's not who you are, right? Like that is not all the way inside of you. And it's one of those astonishing moments where 
that only becomes true about that person because that other person sees it and it's building on that person seeing that that isn't true or maybe even saying it and not believing it but making it true because they said it to me is kind of beautifully done and underwritten purposefully so that they had to add this compensatory clown figure to the movie because I thought that was quite deft. He keeps firing these absurdities at her, stereotypical absurdities at her. And the playfulness and deftness and kind of, you know, she doesn't crack a sweat, like firing them back and putting them back on him, which is so much more powerful than like indignation or how could you ever have been led to believe? I mean, there's a a layer of knowingness and self-protective irony to that character that I found in its own way, in the context of that universe, very believable and very moving. Can I ask you guys one question before we wrap? We haven't talked about Scarlett Johansson's performance, and she is Oscar-nominated. She has two Oscar nominations this year, Supporting Actress for This and Best Actress for Marriage Story. And I was somewhat surprised watching this movie to think that a, a plurality or whatever it is of Academy voters thought this performance was, A, sort of just significant enough in the movie, and B, an outstanding enough performance to be nominated for an Oscar. And that's no diss on ScarJo. I think she fits in with the strange world of this movie and manages to speak the somewhat arch dialogue convincingly, but I don't quite get what the big deal is. Do you have thoughts on that? I mean, I've already spoken about her sweaters, which are quite beautiful. Oh, yeah. I mean, her <laughs> costume design, she looks incredible, and I, I love her um, her alpine jaunty look. I mean, there's one scene where, it, you know, Jojo is confused about the absence of his father, who's been tarred as a deserter by the German army, and, um, you know, whose role we later come to learn is more complex. I would assume that this nomination hinges entirely on the dinner scene where she's, you know, having a tense dinner where she's trying not to talk about politics with her 10 year old Nazi son. And then it uh, pivots into a a scene where she's sort of impersonating her absent husband and herself at the same time. And I, I thought that was a very moving and complicated bit of acting. I mean, you know, compared to some performances that were not nominated at all this year, like Lupita Nyong'o's that we've discussed at length, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't think it's like it have been a crime if it weren't nominated. But the strangeness and the multiplicity of her performance here and what she's trying to protect, protect him from, I thought it was nice. I mean, Best Supporting Actress is always a little bit of a wild card category, I think. All right. Well, we're uh, it's a split decision here. This is one we would love to get some uh, mail on, some response to. So, Jojo Rabbit, what did you think? Uh, all right, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast we talk about business before we proceed further. Uh, Dana, what do you have? Uh, my only business is to tell everyone that in Slate Plus today, we are going to be talking about Kobe Bryant, as everyone has been for the past 24 hours since hearing of his shocking death in a helicopter crash. Because we're not a sports podcast and maybe because I'm not a sports person, we're not covering this as a main segment. But there's been so much repercussion to his death, including social media responses, social media fights, the suspension of a Washington Post reporter who tweeted about it. There is a lot to talk about when you're talking about Kobe Bryant today. So we're going to get into a little bit of that in Slate Plus. Otherwise, Steve, I think you had one piece of business you wanted to transact. Yes, it's true. I apparently misspoke and for some reason called uh, the Scottish writer John Buchan. I said that he was Irish, um, which is odd because I was talking about his relationship to another Scottish writer, Ian Rankin. But um, who knows? Maybe I got a little mixed up in the moment. But yes, John Buchan was Scottish, not Irish. And I think that's it for business this week. So what's next?
Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Superb. All right. The Navarro College Bulldog cheer team are to cheerleading what Duke is to basketball. They are the blue chip, absolutely dominant program winners of national title after national title under the iron-fisted aegis of an iconic coach. Cheer, the new Netflix docuseries, follows the 40-strong cheer team as it prepares for Daytona, where the National Cheerleading Championships uh, are held, and they're expected to win them. The series is a classic sports genre piece. They're fighting through injuries, both bodily and psychic, up to the big game, but that hardly does it justice. The series is so gripping for the various individual life histories of the central players, how they're presented, and what they are. Cheerleading, it turns out, is the worst world's biggest trust exercise and a kind of home for orphans and misfits. This is a, it's just a remarkable documentary series. It is a study in pathos. Let's listen to a clip. One, three. Oh, oh! When Sherbs got hurt. Sorry. Are you okay, Morgan? I had to learn baskets. Great. Hey, hip, hip. But it's kind of scary because baskets are one of the most dangerous things that we do, I feel like, because... There's been times where people have like landed on their neck and broke their neck from doing baskets. That was scary. But for me, I just was like, you know what? Monica needs me to do it, so I'm just gonna step up and just do it. Come on, Morgan. Squeeze your butt. It's crazy what we do if you think about it. Like, whoever thought of taking two people and a back spot and chucking someone into the air and see how many times they can spin, how many times they can flip. That person is psychotic. But yeah, I'm the crazy person because I'm the one that does it. Oh, that was much better. My only critique is you pike a little on that ball X full. Oh man, Julia, if if you are not with me on this, you're a stranger to me. I'm so all yeah. in. I, I, oh, Julia. Oh God. Oh, stomp mm-hmm. on my heart. No, I I can't step on your heart. I have a I have like an expectations problem here because people have just been burbling and bubbling about this show on social media for the last two or three weeks, and it feels like you know a little chorus in the background of my social media life is going cheer, 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 and I was like, oh, I can't wait to watch that Netflix show. I'm just gonna love it so much. Like, what do I like more than a sports drama, a really well done serious documentary? Uh, you know, I just, I could, I was so expecting to be madly in love with it that I was a little bit surprised by what it actually is, which I don't think is a knock on the show at all. I mean, I really like this. If you are the sort of person who hears the description and thinks, yes, I would like to spend six hours with uh, the Navarro cheer team, you probably will enjoy spending six hours with the Navarro cheer team. I just found that it was a bit shaggier in construction than I expected. I mean, it's, I think to the show's credit that it's not like a plucky reality show where we like get everybody introduced with like their name and the, I'm not here to make friends montage. I'm not asking for that. Um, but it, it the, the posture of the documentarians is neither kind of the quiet, 
let me just sit here in the corner, remove of a Frederick Wiseman documentary, but it's also, it's shaped in some ways, but not super processed and compressed. I'm not, my words are failing me. Dana, help me. Help me describe this, <laughs> I mean, this sort of perhaps, saggy but pleasing quality of this film. Yeah, I was going to say perhaps too long compresses it <laughs> a little bit better. <laughs> but I, I think maybe that was a form over function. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it simple. Occam's razor, always. I mean, I think that this, this, maybe your response to this also has to do with how exotic and unusual the world that it shows is to you. I was thinking about that, hearing Steve, Mm. you know, raving about it, because it certainly shows a world that, you know, we don't often spend time in, which is a sweaty gym in Corsicana. Is that the name? Corsicana, Texas, um, Mm -hmm. which is a small town outside of Dallas at a junior college, which is important because these are kids who only have two years in college. They're not most of them well-off university students, although some of them, I think, are from middle-class families and, you know, who are working hard to get them to this famous cheer place. A lot of them came there out of much more difficult circumstances. All of that background stuff is really interesting. But to me, spending six hours standing in a gym in Texas while a conservative lady screams at you to perform better just feels more like bad memories from from high school. Not that I was an elite cheerleader by any means. It was me just trying to avoid getting hit by a ball and dodgeball or something. But I mean, I think... It's this is all really well done. This is as, as I say, this is really more me being a little bit allergic to that kind of content between between not being super into sports or documentaries about competition, um, finding the atmosphere a little bit claustrophobic, and just not being quite sure why it needs to be six hours long. I would be super interested to see a two hour documentary about this world. I have seen two hours of it and enjoyed the two hours. I'm curious about the arcs of some of the characters, so I may keep watching, but I'm not sure that I need to spend four more hours in this world. There's one moment, I believe it's in the first episode, so Julia, you've probably seen it too, and Steve, I know you have, where the kids who have all come from out of town sit down with some sort of Texas seminar with one of the teachers at the at the college, and she's sort of trying to tell them facts about Texas so they can fit into their new culture. And that scene is just horrifying. It's it's pure ideology. She's talking about how she's a Second Amendment person and a gun toter, and they all have to understand the significance of marriage being between one man and one woman. And I mean, she's just laying down a bunch of sort of political cant as if it was pure fact about the state. And while the kids in the class have some sense that what she's doing is bogus, they also seem to be maybe confused about how indoctrinated they're supposed to be. So to me, again, it was just a bad claustrophobic high school flashback. And, uh, you know, I guess those scenes are illuminating about the culture of that place. But I didn't feel that it was much investigated beyond throwing in that random scene. Well, and I will be curious to see how they dig into the sexuality of the men on the team over time. It feels like that's a place where they are very consciously highlighting the juxtaposition between this woman. Yes, distributing can't. It's very interesting. She slightly is presenting it as like what people here expect, what people here like. People here care about one man and one woman. She distances herself from it ever so slightly while leaving you with the distinct impression that this is exactly what she herself believes too, but in a way that makes it, you know, slightly more nauseatingly plausible to deliver this speech to a room full of people whose sexualities and gender identities may not conform to Texas norms. Yeah, that is a totally fascinating scene. And I, I do 
wonder. It, it does feel like that sort of planted at the beginning to allow the film to explore some of those issues as it goes on. I also think, and I really probably shouldn't say this having seen only two episodes out of six, but I'm don't, I don't see quite enough of a critique of the culture of excellence that seems to be leaving some of these kids injured right. and um, insufficiently right. looked out for. You know, I mean, I don't want there to be a total takedown of this coach, but I mean, the coach Monica Aldama is a really strong and fascinating character. She's very important in these kids' lives. She's one of those teacher, coach, mentor figures who pushes you too hard, but you're grateful for being pushed too hard and who has this almost BDSM kind of relationship with her students, right? I mean, they want to be punished and made to do push-ups by her because it proves that she cares about them and is paying attention to that they might make Matt, as the obsessive phrase of this show is, meaning that they get to be among the 20 kids on the team that perform at this Daytona championship every year. They're on the mat for that. Again, if you're somebody who loves documentaries about sports competition and you're curious about the world of high-end cheerleading, you're certainly going to learn a lot from this. But I mean, it's no hoop dreams. You know what I'm saying? It's pretty focused on this one character, the coach, uh, a few characters um, from among the team and not necessarily placing them in a social context the way I think a truly great documentary might. I would push back on that. I, I'm four hours in and I think it goes, I, I, should it have been six hours? Maybe not. I don't see how you could have done, done it at under three. But putting that aside, I think that it, it starts to go pretty deep into the social circumstances the and backgrounds of three, really three of the characters well, actually, four of them in particular, and um, I agree that it's not heavy-handed about the relationship between cheerleading and the kind of immense amounts of internalized personal stress necessary to do it at this competitive level. But that is absolutely there. I mean, it it draws that contrast at the beginning of every episode. You tend to get a teaser, you know, an opener which involves like some form of, as I said, like bodily or psychic injury, like someone is under an amazing amount of stress to perform or do something that they haven't done before because someone is injured. And then it cuts to the same in image every time of them forming the climactic pyramid, um, which is just meant to be this, the quintessence of cheerleading, right? Like the the climactic moment where everyone is smiling and the number is over and whatever. And I, I just think that that contrast is drawn over and over again. I don't, it's not exactly a social commentary piece, but it reminds me a lot more of like mid-period Springsteen songs than it does your average sports movie. I mean, it's it to me is about a society that orphans children routinely. I mean, at least four of them could be legit. The four main ones could all legitimately be described as orphans. It's about how that allows this surrogacy to take root in each one of them, this person about whom you're supposed to have deeply equivocal feelings, the authoritarian woman um, who, you know, kind of shapes the team and, and for whom, you know, anything less than a championship is, I guess, some form of humiliation. And, you know, she's sort of kind of horrible in some sense, but you can't gainsay the extent to which some vacuum is being filled by her attentions. And I... I am really, I'm very invested in it. I mean, like, I, maybe I went in, I went in kind of hearing, internalizing the hype. People I know had watched it and loved it. And it totally, it hit the mark for me. I'm all in. I'm going to watch all six hours without fail. I need to know 
is Morgan going to hit the pyramid? And can Jerry both stunt and tumble? Oh, Jerry. Jerry is a great character. I mean, the kids are fantastic. And the athletic feats they're capable of are breathtaking. So it's worth watching just simply on that level. I think maybe I'm just I'm holding it to a really high standard of sort of the greatest documentaries of all time. I think that for a six hour show about cheerleading on Netflix, it's it's as excellent as you could expect it to be. I'm still struggling to put words to the weird combination of unshaped and shaped that each hour is. Like I found myself struggling to perceive the structures and rhythms of each episode. And like you, Dana, I watched two hours of it. So maybe Steve, you can point to this, but that, you know, it opens with this kind of long montage of everybody just introducing you to the world of cheerleading and this very direct to camera. What's striking about it is that there's just this one competition, you know, mostly you're cheering on along these games, but you're also preparing all year for Daytona and then in Daytona, you perform for two minutes and 15 seconds and there's nothing to go on to just the, the incredible one shotness of it. Um, they establish, they establish the world. Like it, it, it's very direct or something that they, they, they are doing some kind of straight to camera discussion. Uh, and then it resumes back out and lets you meet people. I just, I found it a slightly puzzlingly shaped object and maybe that's just my, obtuseness, but am I alone in finding its rhythms a little bit off kilter? Uh, No, not entirely. What I would say is that I, you know, the little birdies that I know in the entertainment business have all told me the same thing, which is that you know, if you approach Netflix with something that probably should be two to four hours, they're going to want it to be four to eight hours. I mean, there is a way in which all programming or a lot of programming on Netflix are made, you know, specifically for Netflix is accordioned out. And I think almost all of what we've watched, with very few exceptions, have that quality of like, there are just places where you could be moving forward and you're not. That said, I would say the basic structure is at various critical junctures in the, so there's a natural story that it's obviously telling, right? It's like, we begin with, I can't remember whether it is 60 days, 50 days, something like that to Daytona. And that's the rhythm of the show. You know, boom, you get the intertitle. It says 35 days, you know, and the point is they cannot land this pyramid. This incredible, she feels like the coach feels like she's got to top herself in order to beat their hated rival. Who's only 40 miles down the road. You have to become more elaborate each passing season because it's an arms race. The more elaborate you get, the more physically at risk, uh, harder the routine is to learn, the more physically at risk the participants are. There are all kinds of accidents, mishaps, fuck ups. She becomes more of a hard ass. They're under more stress, you know, presumably it gets down to 20, 10, five days to Daytona, and then you get the big thing. That That's the basic arc of it within which at every key juncture that someone needs to come off of the sideline and onto the mat or has to stretch themselves in order to perform in this new recondite number, you get that person's personal backstory. And I have to say the four main ones, each one, I, like they're pretty, they're pretty intense. Like these are each pretty rat these are people who've been orphaned by society parents and life and i am i it works for me the question the 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 you know cheap question that we all know is going to get answered going in is will they win but the subsidiary question of like will this person do something physically transcendent in order to please this surrogate parent figure and is that a form 
like against what background of social deprivation are people that desperate to please that kind of a figure? Like all of that to me is very, very present. At the same time, all four of those people, I mean, I'll give you an example where the documentary hooked me. So there's this young girl named Morgan, 96 pounds, who has one set of skills, but not another set of skills. So she's not a top girl, which means that at the very top of the pyramid, I think there are two or four uh, young women, all of whom need to be like, like gymnasts beyond gymnasts, right? I mean, they have to be so skilled, it's preposterous on multiple different levels. Um, And she has some of those skills, but not all of those skills. And her orphan story, I won't, don't need to get into, but suffice it to say that for whatever reason, she was raised by grandparents, not parents. There's something bereft about her. Like this person is going through life. She's like on one hand, like a classic kind of little tiny American pixie, all American pixie with brunette hair and like chestnut eyes. And on the other hand, there's like a kind of owlish grief to her eyes because of the abandonment that she's suffered. And there's just one moment in either the first or second episode, it's pretty early on where she's sitting and the coach is next to her, possibly sitting, I can't remember. And the look that young girl gives that woman of just yearning for approval and meaning. And I was like, I'm in, I'm all in. And I just, I think it's, I think it's beautifully done. It's overlong. It's, 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 there's filler, you know, and that doesn't lend itself to beautifully elegant arcs, but it's, I just think it's a remarkable, you know, really good TV. All right. Well, again, like a pretty, pretty split decision here on, I thought we were all going to rhapsodize in unison, but no, they didn't love it. But cheer. It's on Netflix. It's six parts long. Watch it and tell me I'm right. All right, moving on. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, for our final segment, we're talking about the 2020 Grammys with Carl Wilson, Slate's music critic. Carl, welcome back to the show. Hi, everybody. There are a lot of places to go here. Alicia Keys hosting, uh, whether or not music is love. Uh, and the, um, I didn't know that Lizzo was a flute virtuoso. Um, and the fact that the night belonged to Billie <laughs> Eilish. On Steve, I just have to tell you that me and Jessamine, and the producer, just looked at each other like, what the hell? You didn't know Lizzo plays the flute? Oh, That's anyway, like the main fact well. of Lizzo. <laughs> Uh, it's like, like her and Jethro Tull. Sorry. Okay. My bad. But, um, but Carl, I want to start with <laughs> you. You said that, uh, Grammys felt like a party thrown by your dad. What'd you mean? Well, there, there were several layers to that. I mean, the Grammys kind of always feel that way. There was some particularly weird daddy vibes this time around. I think particularly, um, you know, and there's, there's several different angles, but particularly with the sweep of Billie Eilish across all four major categories, um, Best New Artist and Album of the Year and Song of the Year and Record of the Year. Um, No single artist has swept all four of those categories since 1981, um, at which point it was Christopher Cross (laughs) with the sailing guy who won all of those things. So, um, So that was a strange capper to the evening. And one of the reasons that the sort of daddy thing comes up is it really felt like from the sort of, you know, creaky old white um, academy voting base, 
it really felt like a sort of pat on a head to somebody to a cute kid like really it was it was almost patronizing the sense of that they really embraced her as though as though she just reminded them of their daughters and granddaughters while passing over some other big phenomena of the past year, um, including Lizzo and including the phenomenon of Old Town Road as a single, which really seemed like the obvious shoe in for record of the year. So, and then there was kind of a vibe um, that kind of ran through. This was the final Grammys being produced by, um, Ken Ehrlich, who's been producing the show since 1980. So one of the things that explains the Grammys very well is that the same person has been producing it for 40 years. And that sensibility really felt like it rang through the show this year. And all of that within a context where the Grammys themselves are actually behind the scenes in crisis. Um, And uh, 10 days before the awards, they unceremoniously put on leave their new CEO and president, um, Deborah Dugan, who was brought in to reform the system you know, only six months ago. And um, she, in return this week, filed um, an equal opportunity um, commission claim against them, alleging a ton of things, including sexual harassment, um, systematic financial corruption, and allegations of vote rigging behind the scenes. So all of that was going on. Um, and then on top of that, of course, Sunday was also the day that Kobe Bryant died and the Grammys are being held in the Staples Center, you know, often called the house that Kobe built. And so there was this kind of shock effect Um, that I think maybe happily for the Grammys um, board of directors displaced the internal controversy that was going on there, but also kind of cast a pall in a really weird mood over the whole ceremonies. And the Grammys are always weird, um, and this year just sort of exponentially more so. I'm curious how much, Dana and Steve, you guys have been following the broader Grammy controversy just because it, it's been a huge part of what we've been covering here at LA Times, but it's also sort of niche wrangling within voting body. And I feel like I've lost perspective on how much the general Grammy watcher was aware of it before the night. Have you guys been tracking that story? Not at all. I only follow awards in fields that I have to cover. <laughs> and it's, it's fun to come on here and talk about the Grammys the next day with you guys. But no, I am not somebody who watches the ceremony in real time or pays a lot of attention to what wins. And also maybe because of the the hidebound nature that Carl was talking about, that, you know, it's all sort of run by old white guys. It doesn't usually seem to me that a Grammy winner, even a, a major, major Grammy winner like Billie Eilish this time, is necessarily a great marker of where pop music is at at that moment. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm I'm interested in your response to the Eilish wins, Carl, just because I, I think I perceive them slightly differently. But just, just to zoom out a little bit for our listeners. So, you know, one thing that has come under a lot of public scrutiny in the last five years is the makeup of the voting body of the uh, Motion Picture Academy, right? Oscar So White, who, who are the voters? What are the voting mechanisms? How does it work? How can we diversify the voters to try to to make sure that there are nominees that are a little bit more in keeping with American society and some of the best films getting made? There has been pretty public scrutiny and watchdoggery of the Oscar voting body. I think less attention has probably been paid to the Emmy voting processes, which are fascinating and weird, uh, and the Grammy voting processes, which a number of reporters, including our team, were, were digging into this year in advance of Deborah Dugan's taking over just because it 
seemed like a naturally interesting story. And then essentially the woman who'd been brought in to reform the whole institution, which in addition to seeming sort of out of, out of touch and nominating and awarding dad rock and ignoring rap and, you know, heaping plaudits on Macklemore while ignoring whoever it was that they ignored the year that they gave plaudits to Macklemore, but Kendrick somebody, Lamar. Some, yeah, the Pulitzer winning rapper Kendrick Lamar, someone definitely probably a more enduring talent, I think it's fair to say, on the cultural scene than Macklemore. Um, you know, the the kind of famous cluelessness of the Grammys, you know, was also marked by this controversy a couple of years ago when the outgoing prior um chief of the Recording Academy, you know, Portnow in a year when no women were nominated or won, said at the post Grammys press conference uh infamously that maybe women should step up, suggesting that, oh, if they only made better music, then maybe they'd win some Grammys. So the question of who's exactly giving these awards and how and how fairly and how transparently has been burbling for the last couple of years. You know, last year's winners were strikingly more female. And, you know, I think the thing that's interesting to try to read into this year's ceremony is like, are the Billie Eilish wins? you know, an, an old guard hyper-controlling the process, trying to manage their reputation by honoring, um, you know, a, a talented young woman who sprung not really from the recording industry, but from her own bedroom, or do her win suggest like the actual green shoots of maybe the new processes that Deborah Dugan was trying to put into place before she was ousted 10 days before the award show she'd brought in to reform. <laughs> like, it's just like, literally they brought in a new leader who burnt the house to the ground like three days before the show. And I think Carl's right that only the only reason it wasn't a major subtext of the show and sub and you know possible forum for speeches and other further prominence is because of the kind of devout reverence around respect for the shock of Kobe's death in the place where the Lakers play sort of swept this crazy controversy to the side in a in a very just odd, off-kilter fashion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, you can see the Billie Eilish sweep in a bunch of ways. And, and definitely part of it, I think there was some gender consciousness and a, a, an embrace of the new generation. I mean, I think it, even though, you know, and I love Billie Eilish's work and what she and her brother produce in, at home famously, but it's really a bit of a smokescreen to suggest that she's, an industry outsider. And I think anybody who watches the industry closely would have predicted that she would do well, because really there's been a groundswell of the idea that she's the next big star for three or four years. And she's, you know, closely wrapped up with Apple music and a a bunch of sort of management structures. And so she's really this like perfect insider outsider person. And, you know, and the Port Now controversy and all that goes with that bespeaks the, gender problem over the years, but, you know, the increasing problem over the whole past decade with how um, young Black musicians feel about the Grammys is really the more dramatic story. You know, Sean Diddy Combs gave a speech at um, at a pre-Grammy gala the day before, basically saying that as far as he was concerned, the Grammys had one year to 
clean themselves up before no hip-hop artists and R&B artists were really going to want to have anything to do with it anymore. And increasingly, those people just don't show up. Kanye West doesn't show up. Beyonce doesn't show up. Jay-Z doesn't show up. You know, they're speaking with their absence. And, and that contrast made the Billy Sweep feel less like a feel-good story to me. Yeah, no, I can see that. I mean, I, I think you can read it both ways. I think this also may be the week where I've truly become an Angelino and can only see the Angelino lens on both Kobe's death and, <laughs> um, and, and Billie Eilish's triumph, which is just like, L.A. teen kicks ass, <laughs> you know? Um, I, I, obviously, as a longtime Lizzo fan um, and Lizzo flute knowledge knower, because we've discussed about this podcast. <laughs> I, um, I, of course, was like delighted to see her open the show and would have been, you know, I, I, I just don't really have a rooting interest here. I would have been excited by that um, and by a lot of wins for her as well. And, and certainly for uh, Old Town Road getting the respect it deserves. I did think that one centerpiece of the show was the performance of Old Town Road, which just had all the covers of Old Town Road folded in to itself and was just kind of goofy and charming in a, in a great Ken Ehrlichian way. Can I say, just since this is explaining random stuff about the Grammys that I've only learned within the last 14 months, uh, show that the Ken Ehrlich as a figure, this, this single kind of authorial vision has made the Grammys what they are for the last four years, which is, we should note broadly a like much better show than most other award shows because they've just, stuffed all the awards to this pre-show and they only give out like eight trophies and then it's all just it's just a big concert with lots of very high glossy production values but at the very end of it they did a tribute to Ken Ehrlich for his last show and at like what I could only imagine is you know I mean I knew it to be like 11 30 p.m so for everybody who's like up late trying to cover the Grammys one way they're gonna close on time on the east coast they're like, let, now let's just take eight and a half minutes and really just simmer in the mastery of Ken Ehrlich, who's, who's made the show perfectly reasonable to honor him. But he told one of our reporters in an interview in December about his final season that he's basically been trying to make a fame tribute set to I Sing the Body Electric happen on the Grammys for like decades. And he just did it. <laughs> and like dancers and bars. Like, I just could only imagine if People are watching the Grammys. Like, what the hell is this? Who is this guy? Why is she twirling? <laughs> Can I say something song? about that? Can I say something about yeah, this thing, yeah, the yeah. Body Electric tribute? Okay, so yeah. I was not watching in real time, but I was aware of the explosion of tweet commentary about this outrageous long performance of I Sing the Body Electric on the Grammys after it happened. And knowing that we were going to talk about it on today's show, I subsequently went online to try to find it, and they didn't post it. For some reason, the Grammys is so embarrassed by this huge extravaganza of this fame song that it's not on the Grammys website. It doesn't seem to be anywhere. You can find tiny little individual clips of it, like the 30 seconds that Ben Platt sings it has been posted by Ben Platt stands. But I, if anybody has a link, I really want to see that because the fame soundtrack is one of my favorite records. And I'm sure I mean, it's utterly it embarrassing, but it's choreographed by Debbie Allen, the original fame choreographer. It's got Misty Copeland twirling. I don't care how campy it is. I used to love it when Debbie Allen choreographed cheesy things for the Oscars to the, you know, the songs of the year. And I want to see that tribute. So please, somebody make it happen. That is so striking. That is so striking because I'm not even saying it was embarrassing. I'm just saying that it must have been mystifying to the general viewer and in general, I think it's interesting the degree to which the machinations of the music industry are just less, uh, uh, have not 
crossed over into general pop culture fodder and conversation in the same way that the machinations of the movie campaigns have. And it, it, it's interesting. There's like a little bit more of a remove. I mean, I think I suspect it has something to do with the turn that the Hollywood Reporter took for the pop over the last 10, 15 years, where more and more publications cover the insider-ness of the movie industry as though it's of interest to general interest entertainment fans who become sort of like sports fans following like Netflix versus, you know, Disney versus whomever else and wanting to understand the backstory of it. And, and I think the music industry just remains more opaque so that you get something like, okay, eight minutes of very late night uh, national attention to honor a man that everybody in the music industry knows exactly who he is and what role he's played. And lots of lay music fans are like, Ken who? What? Debbie, what? Okay, sure. But I, I hope you find it pirated or bit torrented somewhere because it was great. It was not bad. It was just like, it was just a WTF moment, I think. Yeah, it was just, it was just the bizarreness of it. I mean, Camila Cabello and Cindy Lauper and Ben Platt and Common and Carrie Clark Jr. And then backed by Lang Lang and Josh Bell. It was just like, <laughs> and then all of these like student dancers and choirs which again was kind of like this weird, like patronizing, like let's do something for the kids. But it really felt like, oh, this is how some portion of the music industry thinks music happens. It's like this, like let's a bunch of high school kids get a barn and put on a show. Like it really felt like that. It was that old fashioned view of things. And I, I think that's part of why that that separation that you're talking about, Julia, exists is that like where like young music fans concentrate their energy and they do follow sales and they follow ratings and that kind of thing for their favorites and that kind of thing. But like just the distance between what the record companies are actually thinking and looking for and what, what like individual, you know, yeah. And music has skews younger in a fan base as well. So that might be part of it, but it's just like, yeah, two worlds that, that can't speak to each other and the Kenner like self tribute was really an incredible uh, demonstration of, of the underlying subconscious of that. Right. Right. It's true. It's like the hot, the hot 100, you know, the, the, I think you're right. That's the role that the charts play for music fans. It, it does seem a little bit more plugged in and the charts, have done a much better job keeping up, right? Like they've modernized their methodology multiple mm -hmm. times to account for streaming, to account for YouTube, to account for like actual patterns of musical consumption. And so I think the modernization of, it's sort of the flip side of the Oscars where box office becomes like diminishingly important because young people are like, what even is a movie and why would I go somewhere to watch one? Um, and the awards, the awards take on more cultural prominence, whereas the charts in film and music have actually done a really good job keeping themselves pretty relevant, as you can see with the fact that, you know, Lomaz X's Sultan Road was a sensation, even though radio and some of the classic gatekeepers refused to anoint it in the ways that would have made it a success years ago or a perceived success years ago, which just makes out to lunchness of the Recording Academy all the more striking. Yeah, and that and that's part of the sort of symbolic weight I think of the of Old Town Road not being recognized is that sense of like rejecting the new ways that music can move into the into the ecosystem, you know. 
Right. If we can say a few more things about performances, and I agree, Julia, that the unusual and and great thing about the Grammys as an award show is that it is focused on live musical performance, right? So things are actually happening that could be surprising on stage. There are a couple of that that really stood out for me. And one was just Lizzo. I mean, whether or not you know she played the flute, you know it after you watch that performance. And just anybody who doesn't quite get what the Lizzo thing is and why she's such a big deal, I think should watch her performance from the Grammys because it's, it's sort of legendary, right, that award shows are not very easy places to do live musical performances. You don't get a lot of rehearsal. The sound might not be exactly the way you'd have it for your concert. It's quite famous that singers that are great live performers mess up at their Grammys performances. And Lizzo just gives the tightest, she and her whole band of backup dancers just give the tightest, funniest, I mean, she's an incredible comedian as she performs, and just most beautifully on point performance that it didn't feel like it was from an award show. It felt like you were watching a live clip from her concert. And it made me really desperate to hear her live in concert. I watched it with my 13-year-old daughter. And by the end of it, we were just Googling, when does Lizzo perform in New York so we can go see her? I also, I feel like if I'd seen Lizzo in concert, I would know whether she frequently has a specialized flute dumbwaiter that flies down on wires to hand her flute to her and then disappears <laughs> into the sky, seemingly made out of lucite. But I don't even play the flute and I want a lucite flute. So I want just like whatever object I need next to descend from the sky in a little lucite case and I just want to pluck it. And what about the glow-in-the-dark ballerinas who had their little ballet session? All of them, by the way, black, plus-size women. Incredible. Just like her backup dancers are unbelievable. I don't know where she finds them, but they're so tight. Yeah, that was a a gorgeous, gorgeous um, combination. I I actually thought that Lizzo musically wasn't at her best television performance in this one, but that that just testifies to how great she is and that like there were I think that you know she was first off and and it's possible there was some sound issues or whatever she just was like a little off key in places that she's not usually or in a different way but like yeah the the spectacle of the thing and her a plum and and also when she you know accepted the one award she did win on uh, on TV which was the best um, solo pop performance I think you know she uh, also just showed how incredibly great she is at emotionally connecting with an audience. And, and that, that moment was, was wonderful as well. And then the other I would mention is just Demi Lovato's solo performance of what I believe was a brand new song that had just dropped, right? I think that was her first public performance of this song that is about her own recovery from alcoholism and addiction that was just such a heartrending song. And the fact that she had to stop at the beginning because she was breaking down a bit just made it all the more powerful. It just Whether or not you're even a huge Demi fan, you'd be weeping by the end of that performance. I was not prior to the Grammys, just through ignorance. And then by the end of that performance, I was like, who is this woman and her extraordinary? I mean, I, I just didn't realize she had those pipes. And that was that was truly a, a show-stopping moment. Although, I will say another moment, like the show, you know, say what you will about Ken Ehrlich, but in this moment of heightened attention to the Grammys relationship with gender, the show did not seem to be directing itself away from that and had this like real Madonna horror complex where all the women either showed up in like gowns and evening gloves or like boudoir hoochie coochie outfits like the the Ariana Grande the set design of the Ariana Grande piece which you know was itself an amazing piece of songcraft she was able to cut into some like heavy gusto singing after you know dancing around and you could sort of see her breath control and it was amazing but I was like, really? You're going to dress women like uh, debutantes or Victoria's Secret models? Like, you know, step up. 
step up Grammys producers. <laughs> like get it, get it together. So I, it, it will be fascinating to watch how the institution evolves over the next, uh, the next couple of years, I think, and whether it moves forward or moves back. Well, Carl, thanks for coming on to talk about the very strange and uh, weirdly enticing Grammys this year. Always a pleasure. And we hope, uh, hope you come back soon. It made it all worthwhile. <laughs> and I'd like to point people to your wonderful Grammy uh, summation up on the uh, Slate website. People should check it out. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steven, since we talk about Kobe Bryant in our plus segment today and we focus pretty much on Kobe himself as a sports figure, as a figure in culture about the backlash and arguments and uh, social media fights surrounding the reporting of his death, I want to endorse a piece that has nothing to do with that conversation, but which has to do with Kobe Bryant and which was the first moment reading about his death that I started to cry and cry and cry and cry. And it was on Slate. Did you see Josh Levine's post about Gigi Bryant as a basketball player? I saw the headline and flagged it to read, but haven't read it yet. You should look at it. Look at it with your daughters. Yeah. It's it's truly, truly amazing. And it was such a lovely thing for Josh to do in the hours after Kobe's death when all of these conversations about the man were swirling and the girl, the girl with her whole life in front of her, was being obviously mourned online as well, but not really known, right? I mean, she obviously is not a public figure and is not someone who is known in the same way. And so what Josh chose to do was just to frame a piece around Gianna Bryant as a basketball player. So it's a post on Slate called simply Gigi Bryant was a great basketball player. And it walks you through her life as a basketball player. There's some Instagram clips of her playing with her dad and playing with other people talking about what her signature moves were and how ambitious she was about one day playing at UConn as a basketball player and maybe getting into the WNBA. It's just a little character portrait of a very ambitious and talented young woman who it's just so, so tragic is gone. However you feel about Kobe and his life and the coverage of his life. I just really, really recommend that people go and pay tribute to Gianna Bryant by watching her play some of the game that she obviously loved. Oh, lovely. Exactly. All right. Well, um, my endorsement this week is uh, an essay by Jenny O'Dell in the Paris Review on Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, I guess most famous for his concept of self-reliance. The essay is called The Myth of Self-Reliance. And I, I love this essay for a number of different reasons. It's beautifully written. It's thoughtful. It's lucid. It's uh, uh, doesn't try too hard. It's it's just a elegant like gloriously, you know, grace-filled and elegant piece of writing. But I also love it for um, the fact that it's a model for how to grapple with the great dead white male legacy about which any intelligent person in 2020 is liable to feel 
ambivalence and ambivalence is the essay form was literally created by Montaigne in order to voice ambivalence, right? Essay to try, as Laura Miller has said, and Dana has said on the show many times, it's the French word for try, essentially trying out, like there's a sort of speaking out loud quality to essay writing. You don't begin with the conclusion in an essay. You're not trying necessarily to prove the point that you set out to prove. And, um, and therefore, I mean, the canon is ripe for reconsideration because all good criticism, I, I think, is essayistic and has an ambivalent relationship to received greatnesses um, or ought to. It's the way in which we come to our own individuality and individual voice vis-a-vis to- the totems of culture. And this is a great one because, you know, she gets drunk on Emerson. I mean, Emerson is the great rhetorician of American letters in some sense. And and there's a sort of secular sermonizing of a kind that Emerson can be said to have invented, um, as well as, you know, a person relatively early on in the American experiment trying to formulate an understanding of what we were uniquely as a society. And um, he's all of those things, in addition to a kind of myth maker whose myth of self-reliance gets picked up and perverted, or even in itself has an element of perversion to it, that she's, you know, she's really trying to come to grips with. And her conclusion is so beautifully done. I mean, it's, you know, I just want to quote one sentence from it, where she concludes this set of reflections and self-reflections with, it's a story that belongs both to me and to my reliances. And she uses Emerson as a way of coming to understand how reliance isn't and shouldn't be a tainted concept, right? That that's part of the American pathology in some sense without needing to degrade or like epithet Emerson, you know, as as some horrible archaic cop from the patriarchy, um, which is just bad criticism. So I think it's just, it's a really, uh, it's an admirable piece of writing. And I'm very excited to talk about her book um, on our show, which I think we've been planning to do for a while. Yeah. How to do nothing. You've got to read it. My endorsement this week actually answers Dana's question, where does Lizzo get her back to dancers? Uh, it is a piece by Makita Easter, a wonderful reporter who's very knowledgeable about dance on my team, called The Rise of the Dance Fluencer, which uh, the LA Times ran on January 16th, and we'll put a link in the show page. Um, but it essentially tells the story with amazing gifts and reporting of how uh, social media has allowed dancers without classical dancer body types to make a name for themselves and attract the following for their moves online, surpassing the usual gatekeepers, and find the attention of artists like Lizzo and others who are looking for people beyond the traditional body type uh, to perform in their shows. So it's a really interesting kind of economics of the business story and a really cool uh, presentation of that story. And we'll share it. Oh, amazing. I will read that for sure. Thanks, Julia. Thanks so much, guys. Talk to you soon. Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And I'll say it again. Please email us. We love it. We've been getting a lot of emails and a ton of really good ones. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We have a Twitter feed as well. It's at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Jessamyn Molly. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you soon.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.